Hello friends, welcome to Pick of the Podcasts 2. I will be returning to my usual format of Beyond the News this Friday, 21st of January. But for now, just another special show. This theme is doctors. Not everyone on the show's a doctor. It will just be clips that I'm playing. Oh, by the way, I own no copyright to any of them. The theme is doctors tonight, so they're either doctors or they're going to be talking about friends that have got advice from doctors and what that advice is and views and other such things. I tried to put on there Dr. McCulloch, Dr. Peter McCulloch from the Joe Rogan interview, but um, just the connection wasn't really that good to play across. So I thoroughly recommend that you listen to Dr. Peter McCulloch on the Joe Rogan podcast. He is one of the doctors that will be referenced in one of our clips tonight, uh, UFC President Dana White from YouTube, also coming up on today's show. And by the way, I don't agree with everything that everyone says on the show at all times, but that's it. It's all about free speech here. And I don't necessarily um, agree with the, some of the platforms that put them on, speaking of which... Um, They'll be, we'll be hearing from Dr. Robert Malone twice, a couple of little clips here, uh, about four minutes each one. One of them's on the Steve Bannon show, and I don't always agree with everything he says. Also, we've got ABC News from Utah talking about vaccine damage. That's a YouTube clip. Again, everything will be open sourced, either from YouTube or um, from links to the articles themselves or from BitChute here this evening. We've then, again from YouTube, a Channel 4 news documentary from 2010. Yes, it is 2010, and so uh, the quality on that's not quite as good as some of the rest. Again, then a work of complete fiction. Total fiction. People have asked me to play a clip before. and It's a clip of a film, Rick Mayle's last film, One by One by Diane Jesse from 2014. And so he's going to be talking. Uh, people have wanted me to play that for a while. And it's, well, I usually do a new show, don't I? So, uh, but uh, I thought, well, this would be the perfect one to, to lump it in with. So a work of complete fiction on there. That's the only one that is. The rest of them are going to be talking about doctors and other such things. You may have seen the clip of Savid Javid being confronted by an NHS desk doctor in a hospital about vaccine mandates. Good on the the MP for asking that question in front of the cameras and um, I assume he didn't expect this answer but good for him for asking it in the first place I'm not particularly keen on his answers uh, I'll elaborate later on and then the doctor that asked that uh, Steve James was on a show on YouTube being interviewed by a Fred Sayers and I'm going to be playing 20 minutes of that clip a lot of the clips are going to be very brief here a lot of five minute clips and then the steve james is about 20 minutes and then closing it up will be dr mike yeadon who will be going through all his many many credentials um he really you know more than it would take me a long while to name them all but he's going to do so in the clip that's going to round off this two-hour presentation so do check us out on telegram at beyond the news gym on facebook beyond the news parlor and gab i think i'm on gab as jim grant thanks for listening everyone how are you feeling data this is a question on everybody's mind and we were worried about that I'm incredible today is day five testing positive for covid and today this morning at nine o'clock i tested negative thank you dr joe rogan Wait, do we? Is it time we actually give Joe Rogan his medical license? He he got Aaron Rodgers healthy in like two days. He you know, and, and himself, he did it himself, and like forty other people. 
that he's close to, he's done this with. So, and, and here's the reality in, in all seriousness, Joe Rogan is a brilliant guy and he, he talks to the most brilliant people out there. Uh, he, he studies, he does his homework on all this stuff. And, you know, it's a fact that this works and not just me. So, so me and my wife are both 53 years old. We both did it. My daughter is 15 years old. She did it. My mother-in-law is 80 years old. She did it. When I was just sitting here waiting to talk to you, my mother-in-law went strolling by here. She's on her way over to get, to get a massage. Everybody feels like a million bucks, man. So Sunday, I, I was in the steam. It was like 8 o'clock, and I sprayed eucalyptus. I couldn't smell. You knew right you, know you had it right away? Yeah, and I said, oh, shit. I, yeah, I know what this is. Literally got out of the steam room. I called Joe Rogan. Rogan said, tomorrow morning, do this, this. First of all, test and make sure you're positive for COVID. Did that, and then he said, first thing that you do is get the uh, monoclonal antibodies. Right. Get the injection. Then do an NAD drip. Then tomorrow, get up and take the ivermectin, the dose of ivermectin, um, and, and, and then another... Uh, Vitamin drip, and you do the NAD and vitamin every other day till you're negative, right? Wow. The next day at 11 o'clock, I had my taste and smell back. No way. Yeah. So Monday, I did what Rogan told me to do. Tuesday, I had my taste and smell back. Right I know people that have had COVID, and, and, and it's been weeks or months and still don't have their taste or smell back. This thing works. Now, what doesn't make sense to me is, here's the alternative, right? If you don't do, if you're like, okay, I, I, there's no way I'd ever do this why i don't know but whatever then talk to your doctor and you know what your doctor says go isolate yourself in a room for 10 days away from everybody and if you start to die then go to the hospital right right no thanks how about we throw the kitchen sink at this <laughs> right. thing from day one and beat it so i did what he said been doing it all along me and my family have felt great and uh day five i tested negative for covid that's incredible and we're going to get into the fights. Obviously, you will. Will you be at the fights next week? So will you be at the fights. I tested negative, you know. So I have fights tomorrow night. Right. Well, I could go to the fights tomorrow night, but I talked to my doctor, not Joe Rogan. I talked to right. my actual doctor. My actual doctor said, um, "Let's wait till Monday. Okay. You can go back to work on Monday just to be safe." So that's, that's it. I mean, it's just. I, that's incredible. Danny. I've had COVID, and I couldn't have had a better week this week. How do you feel about the ivermectin, the way people just mischaracterized it? And Again, we go back to Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan had CNN's doctor on there, and he made their doctor admit that this is a real medicine for people and not a uh, horse to warmer. So it, it's just it's crazy that, that, that there's any type of – it's like – remember when you used to get the cold, right? Yep. You, got, you got the common cold, right? Yep. 500 different people had different remedies and things that you could do right. to beat the cold, you right. know? And, and, and nobody attacked anybody if they had, if they said, hey, take some chicken noodle soup, then rub some Vicks on your chest, right. and then, you right. know what I mean? Right. Would, try, oh, try anything. Kill this guy, because he said to do right. that. You know right. I mean? it's like, the cold was never political, Dana. Exactly, exactly you know? right. <laughs> it's insanity, man. I'm telling you right now, this thing has not only worked for me, Aaron Rodgers, my family, from my 15-year-old daughter to my 80-year-old mother-in-law, um, the list goes on and on. So, listen, it, it, again, this is the way I feel about everything. This is a free country. You can do whatever you want to do. If you want to get back, oh, and by the way, for all the people out there, 
I'm not some crazy anti-vaxxer. I'm vaccinated. I, I, I am vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. And I still got COVID. And I wasn't going to lay around for 10 days oh. and, and roll the dice and see how this thing was going to play out for me. Let's, let's talk about 269 first. It's a, it's a great card, top to bottom, bunch of good fights. What are you most excited about? I don't usually read from a prepared speech, but this is so important that I wanted to make sure that I got every single word and fact, scientific fact, correct. I stand by this statement with a career dedicated to vaccine research and development. I'm vaccinated for COVID, and I'm generally pro-vaccination. I've devoted my entire career to developing safe and effective ways to prevent and treat infectious diseases. After this, I'll be posting the text of this statement so that you can share it with your friends and family. Here's the thing. Before you inject your child, a decision that is irreversible, I wanted to let you know the scientific facts about this genetic vaccine, which is based on the RNA vaccine technology I created. There are three main issues that parents need to understand before they take this irrevocable decision. The first is that a viral gene will be injected into your parents' cells. This gene forces your child's body to make toxic spike proteins. These proteins often cause permanent damage in children's critical organs. These organs include their brain and nervous system, their heart and blood vessels, including blood clots, their reproductive system, and most importantly, this vaccine can trigger fundamental changes to their immune system. The most alarming point about this is that once these damages have occurred, they are irreparable. They cannot be reversed. You can't fix the lesions within their brains. You cannot repair heart tissue scarring. You cannot repair a genetically reset immune system. And this vaccine can cause reproductive damage that could affect future generations of your family. The second thing you need to know is about the fact that this novel technology has not been adequately tested. We need at least five years of testing and research before we can really understand the risks associated with this new technology. The harms and risk from new medicines often become revealed many years later. I ask you, to ask yourself as a fellow parent if you want your child to be part of the most radical experiment in human history. One final point. The reason they're giving you to vaccinate your child is a lie. Your children represent no danger to their parents or grandparents. It's actually the opposite. Their immunity after getting COVID is critical to save your family, if not the world, from this disease. Finally, 
in summary, there's no benefit for your children or your family to be vaccinating your children against the small risks of the virus, given the known health risks of the vaccine that as a parent, you and your children may have to live with for the rest of your lives. The risk-benefit analysis is not even close with this vaccine for children. As a parent and grandparent, my strong recommendation to you is to resist and fight to protect your children. It is one of the greatest medical scandals of the century, according to a leading health expert in Brussels. The Council of Europe Health Chief has accused major pharmaceutical firms of organizing a campaign of panic and unduly influencing World Health Organization decisions. And with European countries now burdened with bills for millions of unwanted doses of the swine flu vaccine, he wants an investigation. Our science correspondent Tom Clark has this report. Flu viruses can spread. 64,000 people dead, tens of thousands hospitalized, a country crippled by a virus. The predictions for the impact of swine flu on Britain were grim. The government's response, spending hundreds of millions of pounds on antiviral drugs and vaccines, adverts and leaflets. But 10 months into the pandemic, only 355 Britons have died. And globally, the virus hasn't lived up to our fears. Were governments misled into preparing for the worst? Politicians in Brussels are now asking for an investigation into the role pharmaceutical companies played in influencing political decisions that led to a swine flu spending spree. There must be a process to, to get more transparency, how the decisions in the, in the WHO, how they function and who is influencing the decisions of the WHO and what is the role of the pharmaceutical industry there. I'm very suspicious about the processes which are behind this uh, pandemic. The Council of Europe Committee want the investigation to focus on the World Health Organization's decision to lower the threshold required for a pandemic to be formally declared. The world is now at the start of the 2009 influenza pandemic. When this happened in June last year, governments had to activate huge pre-prepared contracts for drugs and vaccines with manufacturers. They also want to probe ties between key WHO advisors and drug companies. Who is deciding what the risk is? Is it the pharmaceutical companies who want to sell drugs? Or is it someone making a decision based on the perceived danger? In this case, it appears that the danger was vastly exaggerated. And was it exaggerated by the pharmaceutical companies in order to make money? Our government, like many others, is now paying the price for being prepared. Citing commercial confidentiality, the Department of Health won't actually tell us how much swine flu vaccine they actually ordered. But it's thought contracts were signed for 90 million doses. Yet fewer than 4 million people in the UK have actually had the jab. Officials here are now in negotiation with their key supplier, GlaxoSmithKline, to see if they can't rewrite that very expensive contract. Britain is now trying to cancel orders for 60 million doses of the jab, but we're not the only country awash with vaccine. France ordered 94 million doses. It's now trying to cancel contracts for 50 million of those. Germany is trying to cancel orders for 25 million doses, and the Netherlands has announced it will sell 19 million of the 34 million vaccines it ordered. 
Last month, an investigation by Channel 4 News raised serious questions about the government's decision to order millions of doses of the drug Tamiflu and the possibility of pharmaceutical industry influence on decision-making. Today, the Department of Health defended its pandemic purchasing decisions, telling us in a statement they were based on independent scientific advice to ensure the country against the worst possible effects of a pandemic. We've been waiting for it to happen. Just didn't know how it was going to rear its ugly head. What? The New World Order. Population reduction. Is that what you and Lily were filming? Yeah. We were filming in case anything happens to us. Tell me. There's no going back from this deal. Everything will change for you once you know. Tell me. I believe we are enslaved in a society where we will not be free to think or feel or do anything other than consume. Slaves for work to buy things beyond our means. Living in fear of terrorism. I believe this is to blindside us, trick us into a situation where they, the powers that be, will wipe us out. Kill most of us. Kill all of us here. They are going to reduce the population. That is what I believe. It's sad to think that there may need to be a population limit on the earth. Maybe there does. We can't keep on doing what we're doing. There will be a global population reduction until there are only 500 million people there. Although I believe that this planet can support 2 billion humans perfectly. How do you know that? It's a question of space and the resources that space has. And using those resources to survive and not exploiting them. Almost 7 billion humans use too many resources. This leads to a very uncertain future for us all. Right, climate change. Climate change occurs naturally. That's why we have the Ice Age. So now you're telling me that climate change is fake? As you know it. Why do you recycle? Why do you recycle? I'm doing my bit. So you're trying to save the planet? Yeah. How precious of you to think that you could save the planet. If she needed saving, especially from us, she'd just wipe us out. Hypothetically, if we want to conserve 80% of the planet's resources, then we should get rid of, or cull, that 20% of the population who are consuming them, yeah? Hypothetically, I guess that would be a solution. Yeah, the final solution. We use so much of the planet's resources that there's just no balance. Soon we would have depleted the resources so much that life can't be sustained. And then everything would die. How would they reduce the population? We're not stupid. 
Hitler said, the bigger the lie, the more the people will believe it. I think it will be done, Hitler style. The armed forces are going to kill us. They'll follow orders, it's what they've been trained to do. They're being taught to be racists. The army are already killing people in other countries. People in power are using fear to fuel the racism. How long before they use this racism to make soldiers turn on their own? Innocent people living in a police state. So had it begun, controlling and monitoring the movement of the individuals within the society, putting chips in passports, ID cards, CCTV. They're using this orchestrated ruse to convince the public to accept Big Brother type controls. And then they will intentionally reduce the mass of the world's population. Mass genocide on a scale never seen before. There are a mass of ways they could introduce population slaughter. More staged events, orchestrated and maneuvered conflicts, and the use of bioengineered diseases. Vaccines. It could come in vaccines. Women are being encouraged to get sterilized. What if they're using cervical cancer jabs? Not this generation, but the next. Prevention and cure for cancer. Or having babies. Madness. You're right. It never went two generations. In the event that I'm reincarnated, I'd like to come back as a deadly virus. So it's a contribute to solving overpopulation. Prince Philip said that. Bioengineered pathogens are being created to eliminate ethnic groups, such as blacks. Hispanics, Native Americans, homosexuals. Homosexuals? Surely that would keep the population down. Yes, but it's not nature's way. Love is not a factor when you're dealing with how the few procreate. Natural selection, where the only natural element is the powers that be. Population control already happens in China. You have to have a license before you can have a second child. Come on, Dion. How many times have you thought about how unfair it is that you have to work to have a good life, whereas others breed and breed and get given benefits and homes? How often have you wondered, like many others, what real value they bring to the world? Population reduction programs eliminate a mind-blowing 95% of the population. Eugenics is the pseudoscience culling the excess population. Fake science. Women in Utah's senator are teaming up to get some answers. This comes after a group claims they've experienced life-altering injuries that they believe are from the vaccine. While the symptoms haven't been officially linked to the vaccine by the CDC, some are convinced that they're related. Now, I spoke with that woman to find out what she's been experiencing and why she's now asking the public for help. There's no question that the vaccines do save lives. Brianne Dressen is a preschool teacher in Saratoga Springs who participated in the AstraZeneca clinical trial back in November. We all knew that some people were going to draw the short straw. And that includes her. She got her shot on November 4th, and she says she hasn't been the same since. Immediately, within an hour, I had tingling down my arm. And by the time I got home, my vision was blurry and double. But that wasn't all. My sensitivity to sound and light had become so severe that I had to have earmuffs on all the time. 
and sunglasses. She says that's when things took a turn for the worse. So I had this weeks-long neurological decline. Uh, nobody knew what was going on. I called the test clinic several times. Finally, two days later, they had me come in and they did a neurological exam and they said, oh, it looks like you have MS. Her symptoms continued to worsen, and just before Thanksgiving, she says her legs stopped working, sending her to the ER. But after running several MRIs, CAT scans, and lumbar punctures, nothing. I spent the next several months of my life trapped in my room by myself completely alone and in silence. Even the sound of my husband's pants swishing was too much for my ears. Um, we put towels on the windows trying to make it darker. And uh, it was a nightmare. No answers, no relief, no hope. I, I missed out on Christmas. I didn't buy my kids a single Christmas present. Um, I've missed out on months of their lives. She spent months teaching herself how to walk, eat, and form sentences again, all while she traveled near and far to try and get some answers. The hospital didn't know what was going on. None of the neurologists that I saw knew what was going on. She says she's talked with others who are dealing with the same symptoms after getting their COVID-19 vaccines. I want the CDC to do the right thing and communicate with the medical community so these people can get help. And while she calls herself pro-vaccine, she believes the people who are injured are being left behind. We absolutely can have the vaccines and we can take care of the injured. This does not need to be an either-or thing. While Dressen was at a research institution in Washington, D.C., she met up with Utah Senator Mike Lee to voice her concerns. And after explaining everything she and others were going through, he, along with Wisconsin Senator John, Ron Johnson, agreed to write a letter to the CDC and the FDA demanding some answers. Now, in that letter, they asked for a response to each of the six questions they wrote out no later than this coming Monday. And if you want to read that entire letter, just head to our website at abc4.com. Malone. Dr. Malone, there's a, 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 a big part of our audience that is anti-vax. We understand that. There's also a bigger part, though, that is vaccine hesitant or vaccine resistant right now, right? But of what Peter Navarro is telling us and what we've seen from the literature out there, it seems like the, the, the virus is actually more resistant than even some of our listeners, right? Right now, do you agree? Because you're the inventor <laughs> of the MNRA that the, we're breeding vaccine resistance mutations and so the virus is kind of voting with the war room posse right who is hesitant or resistant the virus itself is resistant and by forcing more one uh, one size fits all on this experimental gene therapy you're actually breeding additional mutations is that correct steve i love you you're awesome what a synthesis uh i i uh it's a brilliant statement and it's it's absolutely fundamentally true but here's another, uh, since Peter is throwing New England Journal at me, I'm going to throw another one, clinical infectious disease just out, Hong Kong, deep, deep, detailed study, incidence of myocarditis 
in boys with comernity, one in 2,700. That is huge. It is a, and it's clinical myocarditis. It's myocarditis that's bringing kids into the hospital. And on top of that, we now have this virus, as you pointed out, is increasingly vaccine resistant. It is escaping spike-based vaccines. Fascinatingly, it's not escaping, it appears, vaccines that are against the whole virus, all the proteins, and that implies that it's not gonna be escaping natural immunity. So your audience that has been vaccine hesitant, uh, that is probably increasingly have, has survived the infection, has much, much better immunity against this strain and the prior strains than those that have received vaccines. I'm sorry, this is just the truth. I want to go to uh, hold you for a second. We're going to get, uh, and by the way, Dr. Malone's going to be with us. Uh, Peter Navarro can only stay for a short period of time, and, uh, and Ben Hartwell is going to join us. Why then, doctor, and we're going to get to Archbishop Vigano here in a minute, why then... In the United States, you can see what's happening here in the last 24 hours for the a crash in the, in the Biden numbers all night, all day long. All they're talking about equating the unvaccinated, the unvaccinated in this country now that are the creators of all the problems with the economy. Right. It's not Biden's policies. It's the unvaccinated. And it's almost getting to be like the untouchables in, in, in India of a, of, a, of a previous age. Right. Why then yeah, are two of the I most sophisticated it's two, two of the most sophisticated countries on earth. We got 30 seconds of this. Austria and Germany tripling down on mandatory vaccinations, sir. At a time when the World Health Organization is saying, don't uh, give the third jab, don't give the booster. I don't understand it. It's not science based. It It is got to be horrible public policy. I, I don't understand it except for like Jim Cramer. I think what we're seeing is, you know, frantic psychotic chickens in the sense of Henny Penny. These are people, these politicians that are frantically seeking something to do because they don't understand what's happening and they're just reacting. I want to know why you won't have a vaccine. I've looked at the risk benefit analysis like I do for all drugs that just come out on the market. So naturally, as soon as a drug, any drug, or vaccine comes on the market, I will wait before I prescribe it or wait before I actually take it myself just to see what sort of you know, side effects come out. But also there are other issues like for myself, um, I, I got COVID, I had some immunity and also I had some other illnesses. So I might have some predisposing factor to be more likely to have a side effect, for example. Our regular GP says you're being irresponsible by not having a vaccine. I, I'd like you to reply to that, please, if you would. There are many irresponsible behaviors that we don't criticize other people for. So for example, the vascular surgery ward is full of people maybe who smoke and we don't go about saying, oh, you're so irresponsible for smoking or you're on the liver transplant ward and you have drunk alcohol. We don't not treat people because of the decisions that they have made. The issue is that the, the COVID crisis is petering out. I mean, we had good news yesterday that um, the cases are going down. And it looks like, you know, coming towards March, you know, Michael Gove said that we should live, learn to live with COVID. If an 85-year-old patient of yours came to see you and mm -hmm. as a result of you not having been vaccinated, 
they contracted COVID from you uh, with whatever effects that might have. How would that make you feel? They wouldn't necessarily have got it from me because I wouldn't necessarily be carrying COVID. You don't know what my antibodies are like. You don't know that but I'm not less likely to carry COVID. It but gives it you is... some immunity if you have your vaccinations and your booster, unless yes. you're flying in the face of everything else that we've been told. No, are you, you are, right I... and all the other doctors are wrong? No, you are likely to be more, you are likely to be safer if you have the boosters and vaccinations. That's not the issue. The issue is that even if you do, you could still transmit the virus. And but if that lady likely were contracted, to. it's not necessarily so you reduce the odds. You reduce the odds. You can reduce the odds, but the point is, is that people, I'm worried that people are going to lose their jobs and the NHS is going to really suffer. Home now, not five. Work is not a reason to leave the home for the unvaccinated. The Chief Health Officer has also determined that restriction of movement is critical right now and that one hour of exercise for the next four days is not essential. Remember, these restrictions only apply to those who are not fully vaccinated. The mask mandate has been in effect since Friday. While masks reduce the risk of spread, the mandate needs to be supplemented. That is why today we've made three further decisions to control community transmission in the Territory. There will be a Territory-wide lockout from 1pm today until noon Monday. From noon Monday, we will commence a vaccine pass system in the Territory. Also, only residents and essential workers may enter excluded communities in the Northern Territory and they must have a negative rat on the day of entry. I will now go through each of these decisions. First, the lockout. The fully vaccinated can continue as they were. For people who are not vaccinated, lockdown rules will apply to everyone 16 and above. If you are not fully vaxxed, stay home. You are at greater risk of catching COVID, becoming ill and needing hospital care. You may only leave home for three reasons. Medical treatment, including COVID testing or vaccination. For essential goods and services like groceries, power tokens, medications. To provide care and support to a family member or person who cannot support themselves. You cannot travel more than 30 kilometres from your home when leaving for one of the three reasons or the nearest practical destination. If you need to go to the hospital and it's more than 30 kilometres from your home, that's okay. The only three reasons, there, sorry, there are only three reasons to leave the home now, not five. Work is not a reason to leave the home for the unvaccinated. The Chief Health Officer has also determined that restriction of movement is critical right now and that one hour of exercise for the next four days is not essential. Remember, these restrictions only apply to those who are not fully vaccinated. There has been plenty of time for people to get vaccinated. People who are not vac fully vaccinated present the greatest risk of spreading the virus and are the most at risk of becoming seriously ill if they get the virus. Do you, what do you think of the, the new rule to require vaccination for NHS staff? I'm, I'm not happy about that. So. You're not happy about it, tell me. So I've had COVID at some point. Yes. Uh, I've got antibodies. Yeah. Um, I've been working on COVID ITU since the beginning. 
I have not had a vaccination. I do not want to have a vaccination. Um, uh, the vaccine's reducing transmission only for about eight weeks with Delta. With Omicron, it's probably less. And for that, I would be dismissed if I don't have a vaccine. It's not, the science isn't strong enough. That's your view. And, and, and your views? Do you have a view on that? There's a, I respect that, but there's, a, there's also many I agree with other, different views. Yep, other, other views, yeah. but... Yeah. And there's another uh, colleague yeah. who's, who's also in the same position. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. And obviously we have to weigh all that up for both health and social care. And there, there will always be a, a debate about it. But it's Might, a, Maybe yeah. there's an opportunity to reconsider with Omicron and the changing picture, or at least to nuance it and allow doctors who've had antibody exposure who've got antibodies, yeah. who haven't had the vaccination, mm. to not have it, because the protection I've got from transmission is probably equivalent to someone who's vaccinated. Yeah, but at some point that will wane as well. But if you want to yeah. provide protection with a booster, yeah. you'd have to inject everybody every month. If it's worn off by two months, yeah? If, it's yeah. if the protection's yeah. worn off the transmission after two months, yeah. then after a month you've still got a bit of protection. Yeah. So if you want to maintain protection, you're going to need to boost all staff members every single month, mm. which you're not going to do. No, we will. We take advice on on when, how much you may. Yeah, but it's not, not going to, to achieve yeah. a practical benefit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we take the very best advice that we can. Not yours, though. Screw you. <laughs> but thanks for. Uh, you know, I'll still clap for you again uh, if there's another pandemic. Sorry, I just had to chip in there with my two cents worth on that one. But actually, to be fair. Um, the minister even asking that question got to give him credit for that and standing in front of the cameras letting the guy answer actually the the minister although at the end there we'll, we'll take into account some consideration of the experts not you uh, but full credit for actually asking that question in the first place so I've got to chip in and add that as well New Year and welcome to Unheard I'm Freddie Sayers this week, we're following up on something that happened in a London hospital a few days ago. The health secretary, Sajid Javid, was visiting and asked the group of NHS staff who were gathered to meet him what they thought of the forthcoming vaccine mandate for NHS staff. It's due to come in in April, and it will mean that medical practitioners who are not vaccinated against COVID will not be able to work in the NHS, period. One doctor, Steve James, a consultant anaesthetist at King's College Hospital gave an answer that the minister was not expecting. Let's have a look at the clip. What do you what do you think of the, the new rule to require vaccination? Oh, that doctor, Dr. Steve James, is here with us in the studio. Hi, Steve. Hi, Freddie. So the purpose of getting you in, and thanks for coming, is to try and really just understand exactly what your position is. So are you an anti-vaxxer? No. What does that mean? That means you're, you, you recognise the importance of vaccinations in other contexts or in this context specifically? You know, to be a, a doctor and be against a certain group of pharmaceuticals would be a bit strange. It would be like being against surgery or being against hospitals. Um, vaccines have done a lot of benefit for a lot of people around the world. The, but first of all, there's a, there's a term anti-vaxxers. Yeah? It's, it's used in a purely derogatory way. Why shouldn't someone be anti-vaccine if they don't want to have a vaccine? I don't have a problem with someone not liking something else or thinking something else is wrong. I, 
I'm not a flat earther, but I don't mind if people want to think the world is flat. Mm. So in the context of COVID, what is your view about the vaccines then? Because Sajid Javid, the health secretary, wrote in a piece in the Man on Sunday that just before the clip we've just seen, you told him that 70% of people in your ICU were unvaccinated, the that's, COVID patients. Is that true? Did you tell that, him? That's right, yes. That, that, that's true. Um, and the number of patients who are in the ITU is about a tenth of what it was um, at its peak of the, uh, the pandemic. Um, the majority of patients who we see now, so about 70% of the patients who come in are unvaccinated. Uh, most of them are uh, also elderly but risk factors. Um, but of the 30% who are vaccinated and come in, they've often got reasons why their bodies didn't mount a good antibody response. Right, because this is quite an important distinction already, isn't it? Because there are a lot of people out there who feel that the COVID vaccines haven't actually been very effective, but you're not part of that group. You think that the vaccines have done something quite important? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, the vaccines have made a significant difference. We've changed the way we look after patients because we understand the disease process better. We um, have got other treatments that are available for patients uh, who've got COVID. But the numbers who come through the door in the first place is so much different mm. that I don't think we can account for by a bit of extra mask wearing and a few more lockdowns because there have been lockdowns and not. So the vaccine's the the factor that's changed there. So is your view then that the vaccines are important for people who are vulnerable to serious disease? to be encouraged to, to take, but if you're not vulnerable, that's not important. What's the, what's your sort of so, position on who should be offered it and who should be encouraged to take it? Well, I'd probably offer it to all adults if I was in charge. The scale of risk and benefit changes uh, as you move through the age ranges and across risk profiles within those age ranges. If you want to give one message you have a limited ability to, to decide those things. Yeah? So as you give that message, you think what will induce people to take up the vaccine and bring the overall best benefit? Yeah? I understand that approach. And we've achieved a pretty high level of vaccination in this country, and that's been a great benefit. But if you, if you don't give the whole picture to people or people don't get the whole picture, because yeah? there's a responsibility on, on, on both sides here. Um, then people may feel disenfranchised. They may have felt like that beforehand. And they may not feel they've really got a nuanced enough set of information for who they are. But you've made the decision not to take the COVID vaccine. Is that a measurement of risk and reward for you? It's in the context of my preferences. So I'm happy to take the risk of having COVID, because I've looked at it, I've thought about it, I've seen who of my friends have had it, what's, what's the likely scenarios to play out. And for myself, I've spent a lot of time looking uh, into health, into all the different aspects of health, and I try, I think, I manage a pretty decent job for myself, and so I know my risk profile is really pretty low. So what, I've got... What's the risk that you're worried about? Of having COVID? Of the vaccine. Ah, so I, I don't worry about the risk of, of the vaccine in particular, because I don't think about the risk of any medicine I don't want to take. 
But if you if it's a risk reward decision, you okay. must have reached the point where you decided for you, given your particular mm. risk profile, okay. you thought the risks outweighed the reward in some way. And you know, you're of young youngish, young enough for it not to be a very threatening disease for you. What's the downside for you of taking so, it? So firstly, is there a benefit for me and is there a benefit for others? So is there a benefit for me? Um, well, personally, I now know I've had COVID uh, at some point. I was asymptomatic. I've now got antibodies. But when did you have COVID? I don't know. So I've been testing frequently. Um, there was a period of time, obviously, at the beginning when I wasn't testing. I might have had it then. Um, but in all the time I've had, I've been testing, then I've always tested negative. So I just don't know in but which you have window antibodies. I, I have antibodies. So if you didn't have antibodies, would you take the vaccine? Well, I've had a few months when I had the opportunity to take the vaccine, didn't know I had antibodies and decided not to. Right. And that's because I think that when the, when the benefit for an individual is likely to be very small, you can give it some time. You can sit and say, well, why not wait a year or two years or three years or five years to see the impact or to see the genuine side effect profile of a medication. So you're worried about side effects then? I mean, it's it's this question of myocarditis or whatever the potential side effects are. It's, it's, when it comes down to it, even if it's a small chance, is that what you judge to be too big a risk compared to the reward that you might get for it? So again, I don't see a, a potential reward of anything I'm interested in. Um, uh, from the risk side of things, the risk is is very small of a serious event, um, but I have I have got uh, a friend um, who's a family member is young and had a myocarditis. Uh, a colleague at work who had a pericarditis. We've seen three relatively young, healthy people come into King's College Hospital post vaccination who've died. Mm. So that's not zero. Although the chances are very small, I suppose when you work in a hospital and you, you see some of those patients, you're seeing a very select group, but they're on your radar. So do you feel like it's because you've had some personal experience of those things that you're more sort of moved by the potential risks and less persuaded just by sort of the risks as described by the official studies? Or Yeah, so... Um, I, I, yeah, we're human beings, aren't we? So when we've seen something, we don't forget it because otherwise you go back to the same place where the tiger was and you get eaten or your kids get eaten the next time around. So yeah, you do remember things that are that are riskier and you do attribute more weight to that. Is that scientific? Is that scientific? Is there an advantage to remembering where the risk lay? Like I said, with a tiger, yes. I mean, you know, take yourself back to being a caveman, a cavewoman, yeah? Uh, our biology is built around uh, survival yeah? and procreation. Yeah? So if you don't remember where the danger was and attribute more weight to that, you're less likely to survive. Is that scientific? I mean, it's, it's intelligent. So let's talk about this question of mandating vaccinations for mm -hmm. NHS stuff. That's what you actually voiced concerns about yeah. to the health secretary. The plan is, from April, anyone who works in the NHS, if they have refused or have not taken the COVID vaccine, will not be able to work in the NHS anymore, roughly. Pretty much. So it's called a, um, a condition of deployment. So it's not an automatic termination of your contract. 
uh, they will try to redeploy you somewhere else. There's not a lot of places where ITU consultants can be redeployed in the hospital. Uh, essentially, I've been told I'd be fired. So what's your objection to that? My objection to being fired? For... No. <laughs> what's your objection to that? I mean, the, the argument goes that the precedent is already there, hepatitis B or uh, other vaccines that medical staff are required to get to be deployed. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new precedent. What's the big deal? Why not just go along okay. with it? So let's look at the hepatitis B um, situation. So before hepatitis B was uh, made a requirement of employment, uh, we had about 20 years of data on its safety. So that's very different to COVID. Secondly, um, hepatitis B is required as a rule by a trust rather than by law. Um, so that means that if a trust were to think this is not in the interest of their staff to move forwards on this, they could do so. Uh, next, hepatitis B is a serious disease for anyone who gets it. COVID-19, as I've had it, many others have had it approved. It's rarely a severe disease in people who are young and well, and you know, more, much more likely to be a severe disease in the elderly. So the risk profile there is quite different. Uh, it's given explicitly to protect the members of staff uh, who work in a hospital so they don't get hepatitis B. Uh, it's not talked about as being there to protect your patient. Presumably you've taken the hepatitis B vaccine. Yeah. Was that something you had to think deeply about, or was that? Maybe as we get older, we think more about what we do. Um, you know, when you're at medical school, um, I think I had my first boosters when I went to the US to be a medical uh, student doing an elective there. Um, and it was, if you don't get it, you're not going to be doing the next bit. Right. So there's also a difference, and that's something I didn't mention before, is if you are required to do something at an entry point, you've got a decision to go in another direction. Um, but if you get asked to do something uh, when you're mid-career, I think I'm still mid-career, um, uh, then where do you go? So there's a, there's a difference. So you were talking about this um, principle of informed consent. Is that the principle that you feel is most egregiously being broken here by, by requiring yeah. people? So, you know, if I as a doctor am going to ask you to have your bodily consent your, your bodily autonomy respected yeah it's a bit odd if i don't have my own respected isn't it so would, if i come to you to make a decision about what you have it's a fundamental move away from the paternalistic medical model of now you take this tablet yeah or you're going to have this operation is to respect the patient as an individual to go to them to try to understand how they weigh up risks and benefits to present those risks and benefits clearly to the patient and try to help them uh, be sure they understand that and then make a decision in light of that. So the same risk benefit profile will provide different decisions in different patients. Mm. And that's considered appropriate in, in medical care. And that's not what's happening to you now as a NHS staff member. Precisely, that has been taken away. Someone else has made the decision on the risk benefit profile and said, you must. So even if I disagree with the risk-benefit profile, yeah, hmm. even if we looked at the numbers, yeah, and I said, well, actually, you don't know quite how long the tail is on potential side effects. Uh, we don't know how long the potential tail is on this. You know, if it's 20 years of data, maybe we could be confident the virus is changing. But don't, 
we don't understand the virus well enough to really have clarity mm. on those things. Yeah. So that risk benefit profile is going to be different for different people. So is that this principle of informed consent, the thing that really upset you? I mean, you've got the you're standing there in the hospital, health secretary comes to visit. Normally it's you know a few polite bits of banter, you shake the hand and then you get back to your job. What was it that made you stand up and voice your concerns to Sajid Javid? When you think about it, what is the thing that got you going most strongly? What got me going the most was knowing that the voices of colleagues are not being heard. I knew that I just had this opportunity to step forwards and say something that thousands of colleagues would want to make a statement on. So it, for the last month or two, colleagues have been winking and nudging at each other and having meetings outside hospital grounds and making small social media groups to support each other because they're worried like hell about losing their jobs and or being forced to have a vaccine. Yeah, mm -hmm. And those people don't know or haven't had the opportunity to have their voices heard. Yeah, So, you know, if there are all these people around and we're talking about 10% of the NHS who are being threatened with the loss of their livelihood, come on. I mean, their voices should be heard. And the thing is, is that we know that if you say something that is against um, what's called the narrative, yeah, um, that's considered to be against the narrative. So if you say something that isn't, isn't in alignment with the narrative, it's considered against the narrative, it's considered dangerous for society. You've now stepped into that role. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I asked you just before we um, started the cameras what it was like to go back to hospital today, the first day back at work since you were talked about across all the national media. What was the response like from colleagues? Uh, I understand the position uh, my colleagues. They've worked incredibly hard um, uh, and they really want to see coronavirus um, no longer cause the, the damage it does to people. Um, so I think the the response was a reflection of that. There's a concern that... I take it I, was a negative response from what you're saying. Some people. So the the majority of people... Well, the thing is, is that people who hold a negative opinion about you are less likely to come forwards and let you know in general. People who feel close to what you're saying will tend to come to you and tell mm. you those things, yeah? It's a bit hard to know what the overall opinion is. But I've had colleagues come up and ask for a selfie. Um, I've had uh, a lot of the juniors express support. The families that I've spoken to have said, aren't you the doctor on the telly? Mm. Yeah, and I've said yes. And then they've, they've uh, all expressed support so far. Because there's also been a bit of a backlash, it's got to be said. Yep. Uh, there's been this movement of uh, other consultants and senior doctors going on social media and saying, well, I'm a consultant anaesthetist at XY Hospital and I strongly believe in the vaccine, I've taken it, my kids have taken it. How are we supposed to judge? You say it's, uh, you know, 10%. Um, other people are saying 99% of doctors uh, take the other view. How are we supposed to get a sense of where that support or not really lies? Well, I mean, Clive Kay said on BBC that 10% of his workforce of uh, 14,000 people are not vaccinated. That's not, not my figure, that's the trust's figure. So do you think those people will stick it out? 
if if April comes, if this policy remains, do you, you think a large majority of that 10% will actually take the decision to forego their job rather than take this back? So from 120,000, which was the figure published, I believe, by the government at the time they announced it in November, um, they reckon probably 20 or 30,000 had already been vaccinated, but the trusts didn't have evidence of the vaccination status. So there was a group form called NHS 100K based on that idea that there's 100,000 people out there at, at present. Some of those people are not going to have an alternative and not wish to explore that alternative. And they're probably get, uh, alternative employment and they are going to have a vaccine uh, under coercion, essentially. Uh, that's not a good thing for those staff. What about you? Um, if push comes to shove, no, I'm not going to have the vaccine. No. So you would lose your job yeah, rather than I'll lose my job. Why? What? Why? You know, you talk about risk reward. Mm. I'm interested there because clearly the risks of losing your job, yeah, might change that calculus. But you obviously feel so strongly about it, and this is what I think mystifies a lot of people. Why? Some people feel so strongly about this issue that they're literally prepared to forego their career to defend it. Explain to us how you could feel so strongly about it. I'm a human being more than I'm a worker. Um, uh, I don't believe I'll starve if I uh, don't have a job in the NHS. Um, I think... So you'd go private, essentially. No, I won't be allowed to go private in the UK. I see. So, uh, well, not, not in the UK. So the rules are about NHS England not about Wales, not about Scotland. Uh, the Republic of Ireland have got different rules. Um, so you would move? Yeah, I'd move. Wow. Yeah. What do you say to people who are worried that even though you might have a reasonable position um, and it's carefully thought through and you're an educated person and all the rest of it, there has been a big sort of anti-vax movement, mm -hmm. um, some of which is based on perfectly defensible principle and some of it has contained kind of scare stories that aren't true there was the mmr vaccine um controversy a few years ago are you worried that you expressing what you are today can be used by campaigners who are trying to spread fear more generally i mean that that's i think it's a reason why a lot of people might feel that you shouldn't have said anything because yeah. even though it might be reasonable it can be misused yeah, um, but I don't agree on balance that that's the bigger danger. I think the bigger danger is the conversation not being had. Um, so I think that it's reasonable for a period of time when you want to get a vaccine out in this situation to have a singular message. But as the benefit for society of increased vaccination goes down, at a certain point, people are asking questions. And the percentage of people or the, the minority of people in the UK adults who haven't had the vaccine, please, let's give them some credit. They've thought about it. They've thought about it. And potentially it's a reflection of uh, information from uh, anti-vax campaigners. There's a, small, there's a small chance of that. But let's please respect the ability of each individual adult in this country to think for themselves. The vast majority of people can think for themselves. This new variant, the Omicron variant. Thank you for the opportunity again to speak to you, um, Ryan. I think I mentioned a few.
when we spoke, I think, in the summer, that uh, what, what your team is doing is, of course, completely unique. I don't think there's anywhere else on the planet that's spoken to between one and 200 experts each in their field and recorded an hour or more of their analysis of the situation. So, you know, hopefully in combination, it's going to make sense. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I'm Dr. Mike Yeadon. I describe myself as an industry veteran. I've worked in the biopharmaceutical industry for all of my life. My first degree was biochemistry and toxicology. Um, English people don't like to brag, but I'm told I should. I was top of the year by a very long way. As an undergraduate, I worked under military clearance at um, Portland Down. That's the equivalent, I guess, of Fort Detrick. It's where the UK military develops its so-called chemical defences. Um, and um, so I was under the official secret act. They must have thought I wasn't a crazy person at the time. I also worked for six months at the um, police forensic service um, headquarters at Aldermaston. So I learned a lot of analytical techniques in that time. Then I did a research-based PhD um, in respiratory pharmacology. Um, and then after that, uh, I jumped into industry. I had seven years, seven happy years at the Welcome Research Labs, before they closed after being acquired by Glaxo. So my my career spanned the consolidation phase of pharmaceutical companies, and uh, we call it the dirty snowball. You know, companies became absolutely huge, and that's relevant to what's happening today. They are, they are so large, so powerful. Um, so after that, I went to Pfizer in the UK at their very famous Sandwich Kent research-based um, I think more drugs were, blockbuster drugs were discovered and released from that lab than any other single establishment on the planet. I, I wish I could claim I had anything to do with it, but I didn't. But what it did do is give me the opportunity to learn, as it were, at the knee of uh, great drug discoveries. People who actually conceived, you know, led programs, invented molecules, developed them, gone through safety testing and launched them, and they're all made more than a billion a year thereafter. So, so it's a really good place for learning this trade. Uh, at Pfizer, I, I left in 2011, having been head of respiratory research worldwide. Um, so I was the chief scientific officer for that, um, that uh, therapy area, allergy and respiratory. Uh, I left because they closed the site in 2011. Um, I played a, an important role, I think, in helping uh, some of those programs uh, and some staff moved to new homes. So the world's second largest generics company, Mylan, um, acquired some space on that research park and hired many of my former colleagues. And obviously, I didn't do the deal, but I, I had, I think, something to do with pitching it to the company. Over the next 10 years to today, I've been a consultant to uh, startup and mid-phase biotech companies. Some are now public, others privately held. And that's about 30 companies, mostly in the field of respiratory or inflammation, immunology, that kind of thing. And in the middle of that 10-year period, I had the opportunity to uh, start my own biotech company with three other colleagues um, and to raise some money, private venture capital, and to acquire some compounds from my former portfolio because Pfizer was closing the site down and indeed shrinking its footprint. That was, that was quite a common model in the uh, 10 years ago. Uh, so, so that's me. I think um, I have broad biological uh, discipline and understanding necessary for doing research. So that's understanding disease and me mechanisms well enough to uh, contemplate 
intervention points that could help slow down a disease or, or ameliorate symptoms uh, and to do so safely. That, that was always the number one watchword. So some people have said, um, you know, why are you speaking out um, and, you know, you're a crazy person, whatever. The three things I would say most commonly attributed to me, which are not true, but I will take them. He's a bitter ex-employee. Well, you know, one, I left 10 years ago. Uh, I don't hold a grudge, and certainly not for 10 years. Secondly, uh, Pfizer and I got on really well. I, I would say to this day that um, it's the best employer I ever worked for. It's a fantastic place to work for the reasons I described. Something's gone wrong since, obviously, but I was, I was unhappy that I had to leave. Uh, they were very good to me. I was one of the last employees off the site because I was helping place people and projects. So that doesn't sound like a bitter person. They also treated me very well in terms of redundancy because I was a vice president uh, and they tried to do that. And then, as I've said, a year after leaving, I came back with money and a lawyer and did a deal with them. Um, and then two years later, they put additional capital in. That doesn't sound like we're getting on badly. And in 2017, when Novartis acquired Ziarco, my biotech, uh, they made an undisclosed sum that I would say would make them very happy. You know, they, they definitely did a good deal. So that was five years ago, and I'd had no interaction with them since. Um, so, no, I'm not better, and I was very lucky to make some money. That's what has allowed me to be independent, by the way. Um, others have said, uh, I'm seeking fame. Well, no, I'm, despite the fact I can appear on TV or on camera, I'm actually, by nature, quite a shy person. If you left me to my own devices, I'd be tinkering with motorbikes in a shed, probably. That's what I like to do. Uh, and others say, well, he's making money. No, there's not a single thing I've ever done that is so-called monetized. Uh, and indeed, I probably lost hundreds of thousands of pounds being thrown off scientific advisory boards of former clients uh, when they said you've become the story and it's not acceptable, which I understood. So it's costing me money. It's um, hurting my reputation, and I had every reason just to stay at home and enjoy my early retirement. No, the reason I'm speaking out is because I noticed uh, advisors to the UK government lying, lying on directly on television. And first, it was just kind of fascinating. But through the spring and into the summer of 2020, I became uh, first al alarmed, and then later in the year, frightened. And I'm, I still remain frightened. Why? Um, every country in the world uh, had what was called a pandemic preparedness plan for things like this, or influenza more typically. And I read them, I read all of them, uh, maybe 20 from G G20 countries plus the WHO. And in essence, they uh, have only two things to recommend. One, if you are symptomatic, please stay home and away from other people until you're better. And that's because we've known for decades that symptomatic people drive respiratory viral infections, their epidemics. And the other measure was uh, wash your hands more frequently than usual, because with any new pathogen, we don't understand transmission properly. So that's a good precaution. Uh, the next nine pages of these pandemic plans uh, involve telling us what they shouldn't do. None of them involved border closures, unless you lived on a small island, school closures, business closures, mass testing of the well, lockdown, masking, anything like that. None of them. Absolutely all of the things that we have been told are essential were missing and explicitly ruled out by the previous plans. So I would say the strongest evidence I can offer for my assertion that there is a supranational plan 
uh, to take over all of the liberal democracies is this, that all of the countries had somewhat similar pandemic preparedness plans that were very simple, uh, and they all discarded them in, in, in the weeks of March 2020, all of them, and they replaced them with the same narrative scripts, and I'll just describe them. I call them the, the eight COVID lies. Every single one of them is an untruth, um, and I think the objective was to frighten people to death, and I think it's worked. So how could it possibly be that Germany, Italy, the United States, Iceland, Scandinavian countries have all got the same bunch of wrong information all at the same time? And I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, there's only one way that could happen, and that's if they all agreed to do it beforehand, really. And so these lies, uh, I will, I'm not going to take a lot of time on them today because there was a very long recording with the programme called High Wire with Dell Bigtree about a year ago. And uh, I go through them in painful detail. Um, but what did they say? Well, they told us things like, this is an extremely lethal virus. If you catch it and get ill, you really could die. And remember the falling man face down in Wuhan. It's never happened anywhere else. It was pure theatre. And it turns out that it's not a particularly lethal virus. If it exists at all, it's about the same as a bad seasonal influenza. Uh, they used PCR testing repeatedly off swabs up noses and throats and led you to believe that these were highly accurate and could distinguish a clinically infected person from something that's, something that's not. And even the inventor, Carrie Mollis, who's died, uh, won a Nobel Prize for this technique, said you should never use it for this purpose. So I won't waste any more time, but they're still using these damn tests um, and they're not reliable. They don't tell you anything, really. Uh, they also say you should wear masks, uh, but masks have been extensively studied uh, cloth masks, if anything, make you more likely to catch an unusual bacterial pneumonia because you're breathing through a filthy cloth. And the blue medical masks, are, they're, they're not masks, actually. They're splash guards. Their purpose in hospitals is to stop blood and bodily fluid going into the nose and mouth of the attending healthcare worker. They've never been for filtering your breath, and obviously they don't do so. But they told you to wear masks, and I think the purpose, uh, certainly in me, it causes anxiety. I, I feel really awful wearing these things. Um, then they introduced lockdowns where you were all to stay at home, mostly, unless you were a poor manual worker, and then you had to go out to work. But the intelligentsia pretty much got paid to stay at home for very long periods of time, three months initially in the case of Britain. Um, lockdowns they told us would slow the spread of transmission of this virus and lots of people thought it must obviously be so because it's a disease spread from person to person uh, but it didn't it didn't chime with me uh, and I, i'm embarrassed to say it took me months to realize why they wouldn't work and it comes to this next lie the idea that of asymptomatic transmission that you could be bearing the virus in your airways yet have no symptoms but nevertheless be able to spread enough of the stuff to infect a person nearby. That, that's not true. It's, that's a flat lie. And whenever um, a scientific advisor, medical advisor to a government tells you things like, like asymptomatic transmission, I want you to know that they're not mistaken. Um, they're lying because it, it's been studied and it's simply not true. And I can append a link to the notes for this program, which is an accumulation of statements by Fauci, uh, a WHO doctor and other people, actually, including me, goes through this argument. So if asymptomatic transmission doesn't occur, and I, I am certain it's epidemiologically irrelevant, I'm not saying it never occurs, but it's irrelevant. If it's irrelevant, 
why would you need to wear masks if you're well? Why would you need to test somebody who has not got symptoms? Why would you need to close your business or your school or the economy? So again, they've lied to you with the objective of both frightening you and I think also learning from financially experienced people. The other objective was to begin to destroy the economy and the sovereign currencies. And I think that's, that's a continuing objective. They also lied to us and told us that there were no treatments for this respiratory viral infection. And I will take my hat off to Dr. Peter McCulloch uh, as a leader, but he's representative of very many brave physicians who pushed back on this um, nihilism. And uh, they have determined half a dozen really quite good therapies used progressively. Uh, so early only want to treat replication. Uh, in the middle phase, inflammation, and in the terminal phase, coagulation. And if you understand this multi-phase infection, you come to the conclusion, which is mine, that this is the most treatable respiratory viral illness ever. Um, it's it's really quite surprising. But the, the use of those treatments are denied almost all around the world to the extent that people will be fined or even struck off as physicians. There's another line there. Uh, and then they would say things like, well, we're not sure when you've had it, if you've become immune. Well, I would say Immunology 101 tells you that that's, uh, that's simply not true. We know that the default understanding would be once you've shrugged off this virus, you will have taken high-resolution pictures of it, as it were, using your immune system. And if you see it again or something related to it, like a variant, you'll be you will not get clinically ill, not not for months, possibly many years. So that's another lie. Uh, and then the final one, and we'll come back to this, is that the vaccines are safe and effective, but that's a whole whole other story. So I've said that uh, the evidence of a, of a supranational plan is the discarding of simple, well-established pandemic preparedness plans and replacing them with this bunch of lies. Uh, and all the countries did it. And if someone would like to write to me with an explanation, an innocent explanation for this, I'd love to hear it. I want, I want to be wrong, but unfortunately, I don't think I am. So if the motive is fear, I think the ultimate aim is control. And we'll, we will come on to it, onto this. The control mechanism that we can see being installed all around us of the so-called vaccine passports, a certificate first on paper and eventually a QR code on your phone that tells anyone who needs to know that you have received the requisite number of doses of these materials. Um, and again, we'll come back to this, but it's, again, that's nonsense. Uh, economic destruction, I think, is on its way. Um, there was a person who's very experienced in the city of London, and I heard them phoning into a radio show three weeks ago. And they said, um, I don't know anything about viruses, they said, but I do know a lot about finance. And they said, uh, the amount of money, it's not even been borrowed, they've just printed it, actually created new money with an IOU from the government, haven't sold guilt-edged certificates to investors. Uh, he said, it is my view that the sovereign currency is already destroyed um, and the exchange rates ought to be moving violently against each other, and they're not, if you go and look. And, and that's because, as Catherine Austin Fitz tells us, this is a conspiracy led by the central banking clique and their clients uh, to take over the world, I think. Um, uh, once they've done that, destroyed the economy, again, I'm paraphrasing from Catherine, Financial, a great financial reset, which will have us using our VAX passes, a digital ID, and central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, which you can look up. They are real, and they are being talked about by all central banks. 
Um, you won't like those. You really won't. It'll be the end of cash and of any privacy of any transaction. And I know I go further than many, but I'm really quite concerned that there is a serious intent to kill a very large proportion of the population of the world. Again, I hope I'm wrong, uh, but all of the all of the measures required to get to this point of control through vaccine passports, digital ID, uh, also, and, and to repeatedly vaccinate people, as we'll come on to, uh, they certainly set the scene where a bad actor could introduce a gene sequence that will rob you of your health and kill you in a fairly predictable way at a fairly predictable rate per million doses and so on. So if somebody does want to depopulate, the setup is so perfect that it isn't completely crazy. Um, before I move on to the vaccines, uh, and, and this is a concern I had, lots of people have said to me, Mike, this cannot possibly be the way you describe it. It, it looks compelling, I understand, but come on, you can't have a global conspiracy like this. It, it would leak, uh, and it involves far too many people. You, know, you must be wrong, there must be another explanation. And I suggest to them that they look for uh, a video on YouTube surprisingly, by a German journalist called Paul Schreier, S-T-H-R-E-Y-E-R, Paul Schreier. And there's a one-hour documentary called Pandemic Simulations, Preparation for a New Era, question mark. And when you watch that, your, your last rickety defense is that this isn't a well-organized, long-planned event, I think will disappear and your heart will be in your boots by 20 minutes. Um, basically, all of the actors that you see around the table uh, including, say, an event 201 that took place at the end of 2019. All of those players are currently taking the roles they had in the simulations and all around the world and doing exactly the things they did in the simulation. So uh, that that was the rehearsal. Those were the rehearsals, and there were more than a dozen of these damn things. And I think one of the bitterest moments for me was to realise uh, that we were doing it to ourselves, that the US, UK... New Zealand, Australia, and Canada, the five eyes, I think, are the leading players. I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to say Russia's not involved or whatever, but it looks like the um, Edward Bernays School of uh, Psychological Management has been used by the military intelligence people and they've directed their weapons at their own people for two years through all these lies, repetitive messaging. And um, so the, what we want to do is to wake people up because if we don't wake up, we are we're, we're finished as a set of liberal democracies. I'll say two things that I've, they're not original sayings, but they strike me as very appropriate. Um, I've seen on many message boards, when this comes out, when this all comes out, don't ask me how I knew. Ask yourself why you didn't. I mean, honestly, the, the evidence, evidence that things are amiss, I think, are so stark that you literally have to avert your eyes not to realise that things are really bad. Uh, everywhere. And then this other thing that's an old saying, I've heard this before, it makes me chuckle a little bit. If you're one step ahead of everybody else, you can be seen as a genius. If you're two steps ahead, you're a lunatic. <laughs> and that's, I'm afraid, what I've been. My, my job as a scientist was to spot faint patterns in sparse data. That's what you do when you're trying to work out something that's new. Um, and, uh, and so I think I have been a couple of steps ahead and probably sometimes wrong, but but broadly, I think it is, sadly, roughly what I've said. I worked for the pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical industry for 32 years. So I think you can take it as red, but I'll say it again. 
uh, I am pro innovative new medicines, provided they're well developed, used appropriately, and of course the profile is, you know, is safe safe enough considering the the utility. So, um, if you were treating a terminal cancer that had evaded surgery, current chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and so on, um, then you might be willing to take a drug that might kill, you know. 10% of the people, you know, I don't know, 5%. But if it, would, if it might stretch your life out for, for many years, especially if you're off the chance of a cure. And some of these gene-based vaccines, uh, I think the original intent of people like Dr. Malone and others was indeed to treat things like that. You could put a, a, a protein from your cancer into one of these um, vaccines and force your immune system to recognise it and destroy it. And that could provide, you know, exquisitely safe, uh, novel chemotherapy. But um, if you're going to treat effectively everyone on the planet, and, and you shouldn't do it anyway, but that's certainly the stated intent, you need you need safety, 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 as Peter McCulloch would say. That's your first concern. Even better, even more than does it work, you need to make sure it's very safe because you're going to be giving it potentially to billions of people. And I did say that I'm, my original training included toxicology, and I was taught by um, at least two people that founded the discipline of mechanistic toxicity. Um, can't remember their names now. Professor Jim Bridges and, and somebody else. Um, uh, Dennis Park. Um, and they reminded us that in the 1950s, we didn't do toxicology in the drug industry. They would give it to two dogs and five chickens. And if the, if the drug didn't kill them, they literally would start giving them to people. That's, that's how bad things were 60, years, 60 or 70 years ago. Um, we had some strong wake-up calls at the end of the 60s, uh, 70s, uh, 50s, 60s, early 60s, with thalidomide, for example. It's a case that most people know about. At the time, they thought that babies were safe in, in mother's womb and so didn't really wouldn't be a problem if you gave, gave a pregnant woman a, a drug. And we now know that their fetus is, is exquisitely sensitive to perturbations in their environment. And so we never, ever give novel medical interventions to pregnant women, right? We'll come back to that. So we're definitely doing that. So because of my toxicological training and sort of a good understanding of what was required in drug R&D, new drug R&D, as soon as I looked at the vaccines, I was really quite frightened because they're a novel type. These have never been mass-dosed to human beings at all. So there would be no way of knowing what kind of effects, uh, unwanted effects that might come about. And, of course, what you do is careful empirical study. Uh, you should do all of the possible studies that if you have a worry, you know, rule of thumb would be if you can think of a worry, you need to show why, why it's not going to happen. So you design an appropriate experiment. You have to try and drown your own puppy, as we used to call it. It's not, not a good job, but you have to do it. You can't just hope it'll be all right on the night. It rarely is. And when I looked at the vaccines, I had a number of concerns. One was all four of them. So that was the Janssen, J&J, AstraZeneca, uh, Pfizer and Moderna. They all were fundamentally the same design, whether they used mRNA or, or a viral communicated DNA. They encoded only the, the spike protein, the sort of sticky out bit from the ball and stick model of the virus that you've got. And I don't know to this day how they all uh, chose just the spike protein, because uh, I, I guess, and we now know it's true, that uh, human immunity uh, relies much more on 
um, understanding the, uh, the depth the sort of the molecular structure inside the ball than the spikes. So I thought it was bad, just immunologically uneducated thing just to pick the outside part. Um, but secondly, it took me, I don't know, no more than half an hour of searching for research papers, abstracts and so on. Not so much on coronavirus spike protein because it's relatively new, but similar um, uh, external proteins on other viruses. And within the half an hour, I realized that all of them have some kind of biological properties that are unwelcome. They're not just for anchoring uh, the virus to the surface of a cell, which they do do, but they're also biologically active, as you might expect, really. Uh, they interact with uh, the immune system and also coagulation system. So, in fact, um, I saw Wolfgang Brodarg earlier, and uh, he led off and I joined uh, a two-person uh, you know, appeal, a petition to the European Medicines Agency to say, don't approve these vaccines at this time. There are here are a handful of concerns that we think are, are going to occur and you need to slow down. Uh, and I think two of the four have been tested and proved correct. And the third one was looking pretty ropey. So the design of them, I would say it was, it was toxic by design. It was always going to harm people. Uh, next, um, unlike a classical vaccine, which is usually a, uh, a killed piece or killed preparation of the infective organism in a little bit of oil or alum, alum, something like that. That's a unit dose, so you know how much you're injecting into each person. Uh, with these vaccines, we're giving a unit dose of code. Now, that code could be taken up well, um, copied into protein very efficiently, and might do so for a long time in one person. In another person, it might be taken up badly, copied inefficiently and briefly. So what I'm saying, and I'm absolutely certain about this as a pharmacologist and a toxicologist, is by choosing this design, the range of outcomes is probably a thousand times worse than it would be for a conventional vaccine because you know the actual amount of protein produced will vary by orders of magnitude more. It will. And I thought that was the explanation for why it is that many people had no side effects whatsoever and others appeared to die. You know, people would say, how could that possibly be true? And I, and I just explained it, that um, with, a, with a, an encoded vaccine, an unlucky individual might take up large quantities of it in their heart, in the coronary vessels or in the cerebral veins in, in their head uh, and produce lots of spike protein for a long time. And, and those people might get myocarditis or cerebral vein sinus thrombosis and die. And someone else, it might be spread around the body in a sort of less dangerous place and not make so much spike protein. I thought that was an adequate explanation. Uh, but I, I don't think that's not the whole explanation anymore. The reason I thought it was an explanation was I, I made an assumption, which I was entitled to make, which is that the same stuff from a given manufacturer is in every single vial. You know, little glass vaccine vial. I, I believed and, and was entitled to believe that within a fraction of a percent, uh, we had the same consistent quality and purity in every single injection. And therefore, the observed variation in, in behavior in people must be down to something such as the thing I just suggested. But and as I'm going to come on to, um, unfortunately, we're now absolutely certain it's not the same stuff in every vial. And that means criminal acts are, are being committed. So we will come on to that. Um, just before we do that, vaccines. Um, normally, a vaccine, if you administer it to a person, would usually be one dose, sometimes two. 
it's never going to be a whole train of them. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some countries already given the fourth vaccine and others have talked about an open-ended series. You need to know vaccines are not like that. You, you, you do not need to be repeatedly dosed with something that would earn the title vaccine, one or two doses at most. Uh, so if it's more than that, it's not public health and it's not public health. So, but here's the thing, uh, a vaccine ought to, at minimum, I think, prevent you becoming ill with the pathogen against which you've been vaccinated. If it doesn't do that, I'm afraid it's not, it's not a vaccine. Um, and as a consequence of protecting you against that organism, and it does that usually by uh, killing off a new infection in an early stage before you're even symptomatic, that would mean you should have low viral load in your airway. So that's what keeps you uh, safe after vaccination or if you've acquired immunity. Uh, and the consequence of that is it usually reduces, if not stops, transmission. And we know now, lots of work in the literature, that people who've had this virus um, are immune to becoming ill a second time from you know, either the original virus or a variant. Uh, and they don't transmit either. So that's we that's we, we can see what immunity, good immunity, can look like because we've seen lots of cases of natural immunity. And authorities do agree; they they concede that these vaccines do not prevent you catching it. They don't prevent you growing the same amount in your airway as an unvaccinated person, and they don't prevent transmission. So if someone's going to claim that they reduce the severity of your symptoms. I'd like to know what black magic is invoked, because I've just told you, it goes to your airway, it grows in the same way and transmits in the same way. I, I actually don't believe there's no mechanism now for this to suddenly intervene and stop you getting ill. I don't believe it. So I think most likely outcome now is they don't do anything useful at all, uh, but they are unfortunately really very harmful. Uh, they're certainly toxic. Uh, so just a brief introduction, I think, to one of the best tracking systems in the world, the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS. It's a US system. Uh, it was put in place about 30 years ago. And uh, anyone who has an adverse event following vaccination, you know, even if they're not necessarily claiming it's necessarily caused by it, but in order to, to track the possibility, you're, you're urged to report that. Uh, but unfortunately, the reporting rate is typically between 1% and 10% of adverse events. Uh, and there's every piece of evidence that that has continued you know, in, the, in, in, in recent years, in the recent years since the vaccine started rolling out. And yet there have been more adverse events and certainly many more deaths associated just with the COVID-19 vaccines um, than all the other vaccines you know, in history that have been uh, taken through this VA ERS system. So there is no question it's public data. It's your database. It's not mine. I haven't put anything in it. 85% um, of the reports were put in there by a qualified healthcare professionals. So it's not true, uh, as some have asserted, that, well, people are just putting in, you know, spoiler uh, claims and they're not real. They are actually, they're absolutely real. Uh, you know, it's often said that correlation is not causation. And that's true. Just because there's lots of reports doesn't necessarily mean that it's the vaccine. But there are things called... Bradford Hill criteria. So you can look up the Bradford Hill criteria on Google or DuckDuckGo. I think there are 11 of them. And it gives you methods whereby you can determine whether the correlation is indeed cause, causative or not. So I'll just give you a quick example. Um, if there is acute toxicity in, in a vaccine, 
then you would expect to see a spike in injuries and deaths in the first few days after administration. If there's no connection whatsoever, then you would expect a much more smooth, low-level profile that would pay not much attention to when you were vaccinated. And when you look at it, I think more than more than a third of the adverse events occur on the, the day of dosing or the next few days, and then it rapidly falls off. So that's one of the Bradford Hill criteria. Another one, uh, and just, I'll only mention this other one, is plausibility. If you have a theoretical reason for believing that it'll make your left leg turn blue, and you, know, you go, you look at the adverse events, and look, it's lots of blue left legs. That's much more compelling than if someone ended up with, say, a sore elbow, to which you had no predictive power. And what I would say is, on these, this occasion, we, we believe that these agents cause so-called thromboembolic disorder, so they affect coagulation, and you may bleed or clot. And so um, any vessels that are plugged up by clots, like strokes or heart attacks, deep vein thrombosis, or bleeding, like uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, any of those things are what you would predict. And lo and behold, they are present in VAERS at enormous numbers, unprecedented numbers. So, so the timing and the plausibility convinces me that these are causative, mostly they are causative, and other people who are used to doing this, pathologists and others, have done a very thorough job, and unfortunately, it's definitely causative. Large numbers, and it's causative. Um, so um, where it comes to vaccines, wouldn't you expect, now I put it to you, you would expect them to be deployed, not just first, but only in the people who are at extraordinary risk from the from the pathogen. So in this case, we know it's elderly, elderly people who are already frail. And that's how they started. But very swiftly, they started coming down to the working age population, you know, 50s, 40s. And, and as you're probably aware, we've now been um, trying to encourage people to get their children vaccinated. Now, um, I don't know about your part of the world, but in Sweden and Germany, I looked at the public record, not one healthy child has died as a consequence of being infected by this virus. Not one. So if I tell you that there are novel technology agents that are being proposed to be injected into your child, uh, a child who's not at any risk from the virus, and who also are very poor at transmitting it to other people because they generally don't get symptoms, and I just told you earlier about asymptomatic transmission as a lie. So please, I, I'm begging of you, whatever your neighbours say or your school teacher or your government advisor, uh, I'm afraid they're lying or mistaken. You must not vaccinate your children. Um, so we should target these interventions to those who might benefit from them because they generally will be willing to bear whatever the side effects are in exchange for that benefit. So healthy younger people, certainly 60 and down, uh, really should not even have been on the, on the map for vaccination because they survive. Um, secondly, there are really good treatments, as I've mentioned. Um, and so uh, with, with good therapies and uh, people's strong immune system, if they're younger and well, there was no need to, to vaccinate the world. Um, and then I've mentioned children. Yes, pregnant women. I, made, I have made a special examination of this uh, from my toxicological background. I was just appalled when I heard a leading um, doctor, I think, from the Royal College of obstetrics and gynaecology in London. The Royal College is meant to be the, the acme of medical quality, hopefully in ethics. And this woman appeared on national radio and proceeded to tell people that if they were pregnant, they really should get vaccinated. And don't worry, these are perfectly safe. 
And I'll look you in the eye now and tell you that the studies have not been done to examine the safety of these vaccines in pregnancy. There's been no formal study and there's no reproductive toxicology packages complete in industry. And um, I worked in industry for 32 years, I can tell you, we were not allowed to dose healthy female volunteers of childbearing age um, without um, insisting that they used uh, you know, highly effective contraceptive methods. And generally, we didn't do it at all. We just didn't do it until we had reproductive toxicology because we were all uh, you know, rightly fearful of the potential to damage a growing baby. Um, so it, 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 it's literally nonsense. This is one of those things you should wake up to. You know, any listener knows that thalidomide changed the landscape forever in terms of precautions, in terms of you know, medications uh, in, in, in pregnant women for, that, for the reasons we understand. And so if your country's policy includes encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated when they are by definition relatively young and relatively well, or well, they probably wouldn't have got pregnant and therefore not likely to suffer severe effects of the virus. Uh, and why would, why would it make any sense to administer these experimental you know, therapies? And, and then worse than that, I, I've written um, affidavits and opinions to say there are two or three lines of evidence that would lead me to be extremely concerned uh, for the potential for harms. And, and unfortunately, it actually does look like um, we were right about that. But you know, I'm not going to push it any further. But that my main point in just what I said in the last few minutes, I've drifted a little bit, is just to say if this was a public health measure, you would only administer these vaccines to people who could benefit most from it, so the people who are most likely to get ill and die. And that would exclude healthy young people. It would certainly exclude children. It would definitely exclude pregnant women. And here's the other thing. It would definitely exclude anyone who's had the virus and recovered. There are scores of papers showing that people who've had the virus and recovered have a full complement of T cells of multiple types. That means that they will recognize the virus and any variants and remain well. And that is, in fact, the empirical observation. So when you see your governments uh, threatening the unvaccinated, including people who've recovered, they are more immune than, than the people who've been vaccinated. So I just don't understand how anyone can go on about, uh, you know, you're being, as it were, anti-vax. No, no, I'm anti-conspiracy theory. I'm anti-conspiracy fact. Uh, that's what's going on. So then moving on to the, um, the hot lots. So I mentioned earlier that I, I came up with an explanation for why many people have no side effects and some people get very ill and even die. And that might be true. But the reason I even thought of it was that you should expect um, pharmaceutical mass manufacturers to be good at least at one thing, and they are very good at this, consistent, high-quality, uh, purity manufacture from batch to batch to batch. Uh, they're very good at this because that's what their business is. They manufacture um, you know, tablets, capsules, sprays and injections in the billions of doses. If you think of something like Lipitor, a uh, uh, cholesterol-lowering drug, it's given to a substantial minority of the population of, in older age, you know, one tablet a day forever. They, they would have made tens of billions of doses. Not easy to make these genetic vaccines, but you know, making a few hundred million, I, I think, would be absolutely in the wheelhouse of uh, Janssen, J&J, &J, and Pfizer, at least. Moderna was a new company, so I can't, I can't say. But I, I, would, I trust, trusted that these companies 
were doing what I knew they were very good at doing, what they did for their business. And then I stumbled across a couple of people independently who'd been doing their own analysis of the VAERS database. What they were doing, and no one else seemed to have done it, was they were pulling the, the vaccine batch or lot number. It might be like eight digits, six digits, a mixture of alphanumeric symbols. And um, comparing the profile of adverse events, uh, with comparing one, one lot to another lot to another lot, with the same manufacturer. And their expectation would be, it would be like an, a scattering of adverse events across all the states and all of the lots. But they didn't find that. Um, this person found that something like 90% of the adverse events were associated with like less than 10% of the lots. And I remember seeing that some months ago, and I immediately knew the significance of it. Because as I've said, although I'm not a not in any way a manufacturing expert, I, I worked for decades with people who were, and uh, I knew their, their pride and the necessity of meeting the sort of anti-adulteration regulations, which require you know, tremendously reproducible product from lot to lot to lot. And so I'll just briefly describe um, manufacturing of, of medical products like this uh, proceeds in two steps. The first step is to make the active molecule. In this case, it would be mRNA or DNA with, a vi with a, uh, an attenuated virus. So we would think of that as the first step. It's drug substance. It's the actual active component. And then once you've got that, it will generally be formulated in some way. You know, in this case, it's going to be in some sort of dilution material. It might be medical saline. Sometimes, though, it'll be mixed up with uh, binding agents, colorings, um, lubricants, shiny coats on a capsule or a tablet. And that's called drug products. So the first step is to make the active, and the second step is to formulate it and finish with the drug product. Now, each of those steps is associated with a series of acts. You might start with a raw material, two raw materials, and then warm them up and manufacture a third product and then purify that. And that might be a step. And the manufacturer submits to the regulator its, its um, pharmaceutical production plan. And each of those steps has gone through by experts and the regulator. And they agree that the steps are appropriate and that the limits, you know, the range of outcomes on testing um, are, are appropriate. Um, and only if they are, would you be permitted to go to step two, three, four, five, until you've completed all the steps. So I'm, I'm elaborating a little bit to tell you that they don't just throw everything into a bucket like home brewing beer, stir it a bit, and put it in the packet. It all, this is done uh, with just incredible levels of control. Um, as you'd expect, you want it to be reproducible. Um, so the effects of, if they follow the, what's called the good manufacturing practice or GMP manufacturing practices as required by a medical regulator, even for an emergency approved product, it, would, it should be the case that the lots are effectively contain the same stuff, whether wherever it was made and whenever it was made, it'd be the same stuff. Uh, and I know they're capable of doing that. Now, if that's true, if you draw a lot at random from the VAERS system and examine the outcomes, the performance, that is the number of people who've reported adverse events, it ought to be pretty similar from batch to batch to batch. If it's very different, I'm afraid I can tell you with certainty, and I, I would be able to prove this mathematically if needed in court, it's not possible to go from two or three adverse events reported for a given lot uh, and another lot have 5,000 adverse events. It's not possible 
if you only vary the products a little bit, you, know, you might imagine, well, they're doing this at speed and it's novel, Mike's being a bit hard on them. No, if you only had a small difference, you only get a small difference in the performance. If you go from nothing effectively to the worst outcomes ever reported to VAERS, I am prepared to uh, state and to prove that that means it's not the same material in the, in the lots that have produced bad side effects. I mean, what I've just told you, you may not appreciate the significance of it. It's not the same stuff. So if you thought it was the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine that was used in the clinical trials, um, some of the batches contain something different. I, I cannot know what it is, but it's definitely not, not the same stuff. Um, so, yes, I think, Colvin, if you could just throw open that short presentation uh, I've run over it a little bit, but I think I think it visually will help people. You don't need very much. So as I've explained on this first slide, if it contains the same product, it, the performance should be pretty similar, just a little variation. But if you step forward, yeah. So I'm not the analyst. In fact, it's an irony. I'm the person speaking. I'm the only person not capable of doing the sort of information technology. But one reason I'm speaking is because of my deep experience as pharmaceutical uh, research and development and knowledge uh, from you know people who are experienced about manufacture and what I've described is true um, and also the people who are doing this work um, we're you know we're self-starters we've got a degree of independence and we're all speaking out because something awful is happening as I've mentioned again in my introduction uh, it's quite normal I'm afraid uh, for Every medicine will have some kind of side effect. I, I think it was a very old, ancient physician, I think Paracelsus, that said all medicines are, are poisonous. It's just a question of dose. Um, and, and that's kind of true, that rat poison used at very low doses or it's a modern analogy, analogy can be really useful to thin your blood. But that means you need consistency from dose to dose to dose. For the lawyers, it's very important. My colleague who put this together taught me something I didn't know. Because those regulations were formed to make sure that um, badly manufactured products were never again foisted on the public, uh, they said that if it's not made as you have described and made consistently, so it'll be a tiny variation, fraction of a percent perhaps that's allowed batch to batch, uh, we will declare it to be adulterated. And the thing is that adulteration per se, manufacturing and release, of materials which I, I assert and, and others in this team agree are performing very differently one from another by definition means it's not the same stuff. By definition, it's adulterated. And I think by definition that they, they have broken various laws. So this is really important. Um, again, the initial analyst just looked at the COVID-19 lot numbers and just found that the side effects were not uniformly, even pseudo-uniformly spread across the lots. But what this other colleague um, has done is to say, well, look, let's compare, let, let's look at the thing that's most comparable. So she looked at all the injected uh, products against influenza. And it turns out, as you can see, it's decades of data, uh, and it's about 22,000, 23,000 lots, manufacturing lots. And if you look to the right, the COVID mRNA vaccines, uh, five lines down, similar number, 25,000. So they're similar numbers of lots. But if you look at the serious adverse events, uh, you can see like a five-fold difference there from 9,000 to 47,000. And in terms of deaths, I think that's like um, eight times worse. So something very peculiar is happening. Um, we go to the next slide, please. 
Now, this is, these next couple of slides are the crucial ones. So along the bottom there are the um, meaningless to me uh, numbers associated with all these injectable flu vaccine products over many, many years. Um, and on the vertical axis are the number of serious adverse events. And you can see there were just a couple of exceptions, one with about 22 serious adverse events. A serious adverse event is something that uh, would bring you to hospital, extend your hospital stay, could threaten your life, require urgent intervention to save your life, something like that. These, these are not a sore arm or a bad headache. This is something really bad. But with the exception of the one on the left there, with 23 serious adverse events, a lot might contain um, several tens of thousands of doses. We don't know what it is every time, but what we can say is that since the, as I'll show in a moment, since the number of adverse events can vary thousands of fold, it won't, it, it's not possible for the, a difference in batch size or lot size to be the whole explanation for the differences. Might contribute to it, but we've done some preliminary examination where we have managed to find out exactly how many doses there were in a group of lots. And when we looked at the relationship between the number of doses in the batch and the number of adverse events in the batch, there's no relationship. So that, that's not the driver. So with the flu vaccines, there were just two lots. We don't know what that, why that was. Something went wrong um, and there were a relatively large number, 22 and 37. But look at the rest. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands, it's tens of thousands of lots where on average, my eye is telling me that the sort of smoothed average is around four, four serious adverse events per lot. And But most, more importantly than that, I think you'll agree, it kind of looks like static, just, you know, it's a background noise. Remember, if you dose uh, a large population, you could dose them with saline and get this effect because people do get ill. You might put on red socks today and have a heart attack. Obviously, the red socks didn't cause your heart attack. But if you were tracking the relationship between your new product with socks and side effects, you would end up with a product with a profile that looks like this. So side effects associated with a, an intervention does not necessarily mean that it's bad. As I mentioned earlier, this sort of correlation is not causation. But I wanted, and this is really good work by my colleague, I wanted to show you what, I, what we think is a normal well-manufactured, consistent, high-quality product looks like in the real world when you give it to, you know, millions of people over time. So now that's with that established, and baseline is around four, and the highest value was 37. So this, by now, should start to take your breath away. So these are the COVID uh, vaccines. There's three there are three manufacturers because it's the U.S. commercial um, uh, utilities. It's just these three. We don't know about AstraZeneca. But remember I said that the rolling average um, was about four adverse events. Well, you know, the scale on the y-axis here, the thin blue line at the bottom is more than four. And the red line, this is, this is the worst ever. You can see there was like a single case out of 22,300 uh, flu vaccine batches that was 37. But really, that's that's probably you know, way over what the representative. The representative was somewhere around four, but there you go. That's the top. Look how many batches of COVID products are worse than that. And yet, and yet, let me just point out, for example, right in the centre there, 651, 483, 5461, looks like it's 
either you know one or two, and then its neighbour one or two, its neighbour one or two, its neighbour one or two, and then suddenly you come on this this one here, you know EN six two zero one, and it looks like it's six six hundred serious adverse events. Again, these are the ones that are. You know, note, if you had a serious adverse event yourself, you would think, thank God I didn't die. It was quite close to death. And look at the number of them. Um, and so a number of things I want to point out here. One is the extreme level of side effects that we're seeing. Orders of magnitude, I would say just the rolling average here is looking like, I don't know, between 100 and 200 instead of four. That These are really toxic products. They really are toxic products, but and that's bad enough. But as I argued, if you were a cancer sufferer, you might accept a dangerous intervention if on balance it could extend your life or, and its quality by a year or so. But these, these products have been given to the general public, most of whom are perfectly well. That's the normal deal with the vaccine. You're perfectly well. You turn up at the doctor's office, get an injection, and you leave, and you're still perfectly well. And all that's happened is you've acquired a defense against a specific pathogen. That's that's the deal. What we shouldn't have is that you occasionally get seriously ill and some of you die. That's not a good deal. That is what is happening from these products. And they're being pushed on everyone. When, as I've argued, if you're recovered, infected, you're immune. If you're a child, you're not vulnerable to the virus. Just healthy young people are not. And pregnant women, we do not know that it's safe and should not, on the precautionary principle, be administering it. And yet... And yet your governments are, are pushing these on you. It's not a public health measure. If it was a public health measure, the three or four things I just said would be true. It's not a public health measure. And all of the stuff I said earlier about discarding normal pandemic handling plans and replacing them by absurd lies that have had the effect of frightening people, and we think that that was the objective. Now you've seen this information and your economies are on the verge of absolute extinction. And I, so I think, that, I think that's the evil triumvirate, frighten people, um, damage the economy, force them, persuade them or force them as necessary to accept these injections, some of which are killing people. Why would they want to do that? And this is why I got to the conclusion. I, could, I racked my brain. Uh, there may be other explanations. It's not money, by the way. The pharmaceutical companies, of course, are having an absolute field, you know, whatever, uh, a high watermark in terms of profitability. That cannot be the motive. It's the effect of using big pharma to drive these products into the population. That can't be the motive. Why can't it be the motive? Because there are huge numbers of industry sectors that are absolutely almost into the ground. You know, the airline industry, I don't know how they're surviving. You know, almost two years of non-normal operation. Hotel and catering. Um, holiday trade, uh, you know, and all of these things. So remember that the only people who could possibly make this happen, or at least have to agree in order that this happens in their world, would be the, the owners of, you know, the people who own what Catherine Austin Fitz calls, you know, Mr. Global, global big capital. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that money alone, profit alone, is not the motivation because, uh, eight or other eight, you know, there might be a couple of sectors doing really well, but eight sectors are doing so badly as to more than outweigh um, the benefits uh, to, that accrue to the drug company. Because there's something not just uh, is there this extreme toxicity, but it's the variability. Now, 
I pointed out, so let's just look at the Pfizer bumps because there's a nice range there. Nice is the wrong word, sorry. I'm looking, sounding like a scientist. These are people. These, these are people who've suffered and some of whom have died. But as you cast your eye across the, uh, you know, across the axis at the bottom, you can see that some of the uh, numbers there are associated with very small numbers. They're so small that you can't see it registering on the thickness of the x-axis marked, y-axis marked zero. And yet close to it, uh, there are a whole bunch of batches that have got, you know, 400, 600 serious adverse events per lot. And they're roughly the same size. That means there's not the same product that's got this Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, it says on the box or, or on the vial, it's not the same stuff. It's not the same stuff. I'm, I'm certain it's not an assessment. It's not maybe. I'm absolutely certain. I can, there is something called the law of mass action, which applies to all biological properties I've ever seen. And if it does come to court, I will, I will just walk you through the history of that and why it is that shape and why this means it cannot be the case that these middle Pfizer lots are the same material as the ones immediately to the left and to the right. These drug companies are highly professional outfits. They know how to manufacture uh, reproducibly, and we saw that with the flu vaccines over decades. They know how to do it. They haven't done it. I'm afraid I've come to the conclusion that they're doing it on purpose because they're so professional. And after a year, they know this data. This data is their their, um, their window-ons of the world. They can go into VAERS. They can filter for their own products and their own uh, uh, lot and batch numbers, and they can see what's happening. They know. So the fact they haven't stopped this um, tells me that they are at least okay with it, and I, and I fear that this is deliberate. Why might it be? Why might it be deliberate? Well, um, as, as we have seen over the last two years, um, big techs like Google, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and so on have uh, uh, persistently said we're not having anyone making a comment or a recording that uh, disagrees with what the public health officials say, and we're going to call that misinformation, and we're going to basically we'll censor you and maybe deplatform you. What that means is that um, a qualified person like me, and I promise I have no axe to grind whatsoever other than telling you what I think is, is true, which is that we're, we're facing a global crime. People like me cannot speak to the public because the tech companies have decided not to let me. And that's true of uh, mainstream TV, mainstream radio. I've only ever appeared on radio where they, where they maligned me. They've told me lots of lies. Um, and I, so I then threatened them, and then they deleted the recording, which tells you something, doesn't it, that I was correct. So um, what, what do I... Yes, yeah, so the, it's the combination of big tech, uh, big media, and by that I mean mainly TV, around the world, they control what's coming into your house. So if you just turn your TV on over the last two years in the same way that you ever have, you're only going to hear a one-sided, and in my view, it's mendacious, it's completely misleading uh, description of what's going on. You'll never hear things like this. And you should, you should, you should see both sides of it. The fact that you're not allowed to, I think, tells you that they know there's something bad going on, and they're going to make damn sure that people like Dr. Mike Eden and Dr. Robert Malone uh, and Dr. Peter McCulloch and so on, never will never darken the studios of BBC or CNBC. Because if we were given an hour, I think we could destroy this story easily. I think we're plausible, we're being honest, and uh, I gain absolutely nothing from making up stories. I'm describing in horror. So, so I've said that the variability is extreme. 
uh, and I've said that the media controls the message and they censor people like me, if they want to tell you um, that there's a nasty variant that's just come along that's killing more people than previously, you've no way of knowing if that's true or not. And I, I don't think you should trust anything they say about this because they've definitely lied about everything else I've been able to hear. But let's say they did say that. Let's say they said there's a new variant or a new virus that's said 10 times more lethal than COVID. And don't worry, the uh, innovative pharmaceutical industry has rustled up a new vaccine and, you know, run and get your, your top up, your booster, your new vaccine. What happens if they chose to give you that one that's called EN6201 instead of the one to EN1201? Well, the answer is, you know, probably thousands of people are going to die. And imagine all the manufacturers doing that. Uh, and over the over time and, and across the world, all the time, the media is giving you a very frightening message. And the appropriate response, if, this, if these guys were being honest, would be, OK, let's um, let's deploy these vaccines as we tune them and so on. Uh, but it's all lies. It's all misleading. And, and I worry that what you've seen in front of you there, I've described it to other people. I said, I'm worried that this is calibration of a killing weapon, that if somebody wanted to say that there are uh, viruses or vaccines that are, say, 10 times more lethal than COVID, so killing one in 100 people instead of one in 1,000, roughly. They could just, just move along and just deploy batch X or batch Y or batch Z. Um, and, and that's what would happen. And, you know, I've got no reason to make this stuff up. You know, I'm not... I've never been a conspiracy theorist. If anything, I'd be the sort of person that would chuckle at other people having conspiracy theories. And of course, now I realise what a mug I've been for the last 61 years believing believing what I've been told. So the, 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 bottom, the bottom line, you can see it from here. It's not the same stuff in each glass bottle. That's an offence in all sorts of ways against the Adulterated Drugs Act. It cannot be accidental because they are professionals that know how to manufacture consistently. It's not possible uh, that this is small variation in product because it's you know an emergency situation, difficult to make. Now, the law of mass action would mean that in order to get these enormous differences in, quotes, performance, you know, serious adverse events, would have to have a very uh, a sizable difference. I would say, I don't know, 10 to 100-fold difference in an active. If there, was, if there was an active that produced these side effects, I'm confident and we've did the experiments, and I'd be roughly right. I've done hundreds of experiments like that, not with people, of course. And, it, you know, we'd need to go up in dose by 30, 100, 300 to go from baseline to these numbers. I'm absolutely sure about that.